I'm Brian Tetta, executive producer of The View. It's Tuesday, and I'm here with Alyssa Farah Griffin. This is Behind the Table. Thrilled to have you, as always. Um, today on the show was a really fun show, I thought. Um, we started by talking uh, with the rare pop culture lead story. We talked about Jada Pinkett Smith today. And you called her and Will Smith's relationship a very unhealthy dynamic. Does it make you think about the way you talk about your husband on the show? Yes. I immediately, so big picture here, huge Will Smith fan. I think Jada Pinkett Smith is a great actress. She's gorgeous. They have this amazing family. I can't for the life of me understand why they don't want to protect that. There are certain things, like, we're all expected to share a decent amount of our personal lives on the show. Right. I've definitely, like, towed the line with stuff that people around me are comfortable with. But there, I would never say something that would hurt my husband or that would embarrass him or that would put him in an uncomfortable position. And that's what I'm just struggling with in all this. Like, I know we live in an era where it's sort of the thing to just put it all out there. Um, but actually, later in the show, the Sharks made a really good point about anything you put on the Internet, anything you put online and media, it lives forever. Your grandkids are going to see that. Like, your kids are going to grow up around it. So something... I don't know. I just feel some type of way about Jada and Will. I don't love it. I think she needs to be a little more in tune with his feelings. Um, And it's also, it's okay to admit a marriage didn't work. Yeah. That's what I guess I'm struck by. It's like if you're dating other people, you're not doing any of the things that are marriage. Why not just go ahead and like, there shouldn't be a stigma to divorce. Um, You just just go ahead and get a divorce. No, I agree. I make a lot of jokes about, I make a lot of self-deprecating jokes about my marriage, but I would never say anything. Well, if my wife ever listens to the podcast, I'm probably in trouble. (laughs) But we have a great, we have a great relationship and, uh, you know, we, we tease each other and that's part of it. But I think, there definitely seems to be a lot of hurt here. That That's what it is. Because same thing, same. I totally make fun of my husband. He's fair game. I actually almost, we almost pitched it as a hot topic. There was one night that I came home at midnight from working. I was at CNN and my husband had a really early morning. I went into the bedroom and I guess I was just like clanking bongos. I was making so much noise. And he goes, would you just go to the guest room? I told everyone on our staff <laughs> about that. And they're like, the humanity, like what, Justin? We are going to do it as a hot topic. And then I was like, no because people won't understand. I think he was half asleep and I don't need the internet coming. So like you have those moments where you you check your, you know, an instinct that you might overshare or something. And with them, this is like oversharing every which direction. You do have like the ultimate like I win, hit the hammer kind of thing here because you have a talk show that, you know, about a couple million people are watching every day. So any argument, he's got to be thinking in the back of his head, oh, I better be careful here or it's going to be on The View tomorrow. I would. Oh, yeah. 100%. He does, he's, yeah, he's fine being fodder for The View if it's about what a great husband he is right. or a great partner, but no, no, yeah. no. No, he loves oh, me too much. Yeah, yeah, he loves me too much. <laughs> no, but you have like checkmate available to you at all times. I never thought about it like that. I know. That. Yeah, it used to just be I'm going to call your mom, but now it's like I'm going to tell America. Yeah, and America's <laughs> going to side with me. Yes. I So I grew up, a hu- I think it's the age I am, but I was a huge Will Smith fan as a kid mm-hmm. to the point where I think the first like, tape I ever bought was DJ Jazzy Jeff yeah. and the Fresh Prince. And I used to, uh, I'm embarrassed to this, I used to, he used to have like a 900 number that I would call as a, like a 12 year old. <laughs> and it was $4 a minute. You'd call 1-900-909-JEFF. <laughs> and I ran up like a $300 bill calling the Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince hotline and got in a lot of trouble. Amazing. No, yeah. I, I it was the same. I grew up with Fresh Prince and then, you know, all the iconic acting roles he ended up having, Enemy of the State. And yeah. I mean, he was at one point, I think, was the highest paid actor in Hollywood, a brilliant talent. And 
Listen, I think celebrities, you can run into the issue if you're seen as a nice guy, if that's your persona. It's so hard to live up to that. Like everyone at some point is going to not be a nice guy or gal and that's going to catch up with you. So I think, listen, the slap really challenged sort of the brand that we knew. But humans are multidimensional. They're, you know, they're we're we're all different things at once. But I think what I have a hard time with is like a partnership. You got to protect each other. You got to have each other's backs and think about, you know, not just what's good for you and what you need to put out there, but like, is that good for my partner? I uh, I worked with Will a couple of times, and he was always very, very nice. Jada too, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I told him that story about running up the bill, and uh, he offered to give me the money back, which <laughs> I did appreciate it. Um, last week, you joked on the podcast that if Donald Trump was in the lead for president, Taylor Swift would be the only one who could beat him. This got a surprising amount of pickup. <laughs> including like the L.A. Times and people saying <laughs> Alyssa Farrah Griffith says only Taylor Swift can defeat Donald Trump. Were you surprised by that? I was completely surprised because it was a, actually a joking comment. A, she's not even old enough to run for president. Taylor mm-hmm. Swift and I are the same age. We are not yet 35. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was more making a joke of like perhaps the only unifying forces in America right now are like Taylor Swift and Beyonce. They're like their concerts. Republicans can go. Democrats can go. And for right. a second, we can pretend we don't all, you know, want to bicker with each other. But I just thought it was hilarious. And then some accounts on on social media were like, you know, th- this moron says this, like fact check your age. I was like, it was a joke, guys. It was, it was a so joke. clearly a joke. I but, also had yeah. made this. I, I recycle my content because I'd made the same joke. And when I saw her in 2015, I was like, <laughs> she's the only one who could beat Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh, wow. All yeah. right. So there you go. Well, at least your your jokes work on both sides <laughs> exactly. of the aisle. Um, it turns out she was not the only one who could beat Hillary Clinton <laughs> yeah. in 2015. R.I.P. <laughs> uh, we had the uh, cast of Shark Tank on today. Are you a fan? Diehard fan. I, I mean, I've I've been watching. I had to check out because it's been 15 seasons. I think I've watched pretty much all seasons. Um, and something is I've had begun to have more of a public persona that I do is I just slide into people's DMs who I want to meet. Mm-hmm. So I've slid into Mark Cuban's DMs and we became kind of friendly through that. Like not not in a creepy way. I'm happily yeah, married. I'm getting a vision um, of next no, week's headlines. Um, it was, um, <laughs> he, he posted something loosely political and I basically was like, yo, would you ever run for president? Yeah. <laughs> um, and he always demurs and is like, listen, this is not... That's that's not where he sees himself best used. And of course, he's doing incredible work on lowering drug prices and making you know pharmaceutical drugs more available. Um, but he's a real he's such an interesting guy. And I like how it just engaged he is on so many different issues. But every one of them, like Barbara, legend, you never know what she's going to say. And that makes her so fun to have on. Hysterical. Yeah. Everyone has a crush on Robert Hirschvac, apparently, because um, mm-hmm. we have people in the audience like we love you. So Damon's great. Yeah. yeah no, everybody's great. Last time or two times ago, Mark Cuban was here. He was talking about how uh, men shouldn't wear ties anymore. And uh, I was wearing one at the time. And I, I, I've kind of stopped wearing ties every day. And I mentioned that today to him. And then he said, well, now we got to get rid of the suits. So I'm like, oh, I can't catch so a break. So between that and Arnold Schwarzenegger telling you to grow a beard, yes. um, you're, yeah, you're going to be fitted out. Yeah. Last week I didn't shave the whole week. Nobody noticed. So that was really you're depressing. Italian. We should have noticed. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they are probably, they're among my top five favorite guests. It was my second time the Sharks came on. And they're just, I mean, the chemistry and the way they play off of each other is so fun. And then it was hilarious because as we're walking off stage, she won't mind me saying this, Sunny's like pitching them on something that she has. Oh, like yeah. always the little businesswoman. <laughs> it's it's a great dynamic. And it's funny because um, it's kind of similar to The View in some ways. Like I would, I've always thought it'd be fun to have a day where if, you know, we were all on vacation, the sharks were at the table for an hour. I think they'd do a great job with it. That'd be a fun uh, theme show. <laughs> and I, I think that they really, um, 
you know, there's six of them, and it's hard for us sometimes to do a big interview with six people, but they play off each other mm-hmm. so well. It, it really, I really love it when they're here. Yeah. Oh, and I did want to say, like, on the Mark Cuban for president thing, since now I just use this podcast mm-hmm. to float people, I do think, I was thinking about this recently, um, you know, experience matters so much, uh, you know, with everything going on in the world, I think we're curious where the next election is going to go. But I think in the post-Trump era, we are going to end up seeing more celebrity-type candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, we asked the same question question of Matthew McConaughey when he was here, too, where right. um, I think we're such a, as a culture, we're driven by celebrity, we follow it. But also, there's a lot of really credible people in those sort of fields who maybe could go into politics. Sure. Cuban Swift, 2028. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I'm here for it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. This is according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com view. Just go to Indeed.com slash view right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash view. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Woodward and Bernstein. Pen and paper. Wine and cheese. What about the perfect pairing when it comes to growing your business? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're delivering daily digests or serving sensational scoops, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com view all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash view now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash view. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, all right. On Friday's show, getting a little more serious, we talked about the fact that you're an Arab American. And, and I'm not sure a lot of our viewers know that. You've mentioned it a couple of mm-hmm. times. But as someone who's mixed race, have you ever struggled with your identity in that way? Yeah. So I actually I don't talk about it much. I only do when it really folds into the conversation. So on my dad's side, I'm Lebanese and Syrian and my mom's I'm Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian and Polish. Somebody made a joke. You're like, man, you really hit every conflict zone with your makeup. <laughs> but um, no, I'm really pr- proud of my Arab heritage. Um, and it, it does, I think, give me it gives me a perf- perspective that informs my viewpoints of the world. I've also spent time in the Middle East. Um, I mentioned, you know, I've spent time in both Iraq and Afghanistan. I've never actually had the opportunity to be to Syria just because of how war-torn it is. But um, being an Arab-American is kind of odd. So, like, on the U.S. census, there's not a box for us. I I usually just check Caucasian. Right. Um, But culturally, we're treated as brown. Well, like— Technically, we're treated as white. Um, it's it's a dark joke that I've made within my family, but we used to say, like, you know, add a fare of 15 when you go to the airport, because if you have an Arab surname in the post 9-11 era, there was a long time where it's like, you're going to get the extra screening, you're going to get the extra scrutiny. Um, I, I dealt with that a lot more, maybe, or felt it a lot more probably 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's just something I'm proud of, but it does make me really engaged in the region and caring about it a lot more than I... I, you know, I'm an American first and foremost, but I want to see good for the part of the world my family came from. Um, And it's been so many years of heartbreak, particularly in Syria. Um, And I I was at the Department of Defense when when Turkey invaded Syria um, and countless um, Kurdish Syrians were, were killed. And it was draining to see that that period and know that just a handful of different life events put me somewhere totally different, safe and protected from it. But people who look like me, who sound like me, um, are living in such a different and heartbreaking world. So I always want to use my voice to advocate for people in those part of the world who've been just been through so many different iterations of the heartbreak of terrorism. It must have been an interesting perspective to bring with you to the White House and a useful one, I would imagine. And then again, at our table. Um, well, yeah. well, right. And in my family, we're, we're, we're Christian Arabs, um, though though some of our distant family are, are Muslim. And some of my, my close friends actually in the White House uh, were Muslim Arabs as well. I'm sorry, the Department of Defense. And I think there was something that informed our perspective is you need to be able to talk about the evils of terrorism, but you have to separate them from the, the vast majority of the Muslim population, which is a peaceful, good people and the vast majority of the Arab population from all over the world who want to see stability in that region. Um, and the other thing I'd say, too, is um, by marriage, we have a lot of Jewish family. And my, my best my guy best friend, Jake, is um, is uh, Jewish. And I've seen how it's been. I've just. Regardless of people's viewpoints on what's happening between, uh, you know, Israel and Palestine right now, check in on your friends in the region. Um, Check in on your friends who have ties there. I, you know, I talk to reach out to friends and they've said, I'm not okay. Um, Jewish uh, people all over the world have seen this before or their parents or grandparents have experienced it. It's so heartbreaking. I can't imagine the pain of seeing what they're going through. Um, We've 
you know, I've seen people starting to share, you know, used to say never again about the Holocaust, but never again is now. And um, as allies and friends, our voices need to be raised for them. And we also need to talk about the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza because there are innocent people on both sides of this that the world needs to advocate for. And then we need to eradicate the bad guys. Speaking of which, uh, President Biden's heading to Israel. Um, Do you think it's important for him to be there? I applaud President Biden going to Israel. I think is a huge show of solidarity. I am a frequent Biden critic. I think I think yeah. you know you know my perspective on him. I strongly disagreed with his policy with regard to Iran, which has impact on what's going on now. But I can separate for a moment and praise him, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of Defense, for being unequivocal in our support for Israel. Um, they're our greatest ally in the Middle East. They're a functioning democracy in the Middle East. We shall we share intelligence. We do joint military training with them. These are our friends. When the moment calls for it, they've been there for us, and we need to be there for them. I think it's brave. I think it's bold, and will be recognized by the whole world. I have to ask, of course, since you were a part of the administration, do you mm-hmm. think under the same circumstances President Trump would go right now? So... Well, it's hard to say. So I think he would understand the powerful optics of it. Let's say this happened in his prior administration. Probably, yes, because he was very close with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. But but for folks at home, now that this is happening and he's out of the presidency, he's used this opportunity to criticize Prime Minister Netanyahu, praise Hezbollah, say that they're strong and do virtually nothing to be advocating for the actual victims in this. And by the way, the reason he dislikes Netanyahu is because he acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election and called to congratulate him. Right. So I that's where I break with my friends in the GOP who are like, this wouldn't have happened under our watch. I have a hard time seeing that because for Trump, everything ultimately is about him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's switch gears again, as our show often does. We're about to do our first Halloween shoot for the year. Um, I know it seems early to people listening. Halloween takes up. We start talking about Halloween in September, <laughs> um, August sometimes. Last year was your first Halloween on The View, and um, we, we splashed you with a bucket of water in the middle of a New York City street. That might have been me that suggested <laughs> that. Um, how are you feeling about this year? I'm so excited. Okay, yes. For folks at home, I did one <laughs> version of it. It was six top 60 degrees. I'm in like a tank top and a skirt on the street, and I had a little splash of water. Everyone's like, oh, it looks great. Brian's like, send her back out. We need a bucket. So I was like completely drenched. Well, you know, it was funnier. <laughs> it was much funnier. Yeah. Um, and I got I got like the most feedback I've ever gotten on The View, probably from that episode. We tend to haze the new host a little bit on their first Halloween. Yes. I mean, you did better than Abby Huntsman. I think we dumped buckets of fake blood on her when she was doing uh, Carrie. So all things considered. People love the Halloween episode. Yeah, it's a rite of passage and people love it. They complain about it. The one year we didn't do it for COVID or we did a small version of it, which I thought people would understand because it's COVID. People did not understand. They were furious that we did not do a full Halloween show. So um, we're back. We're doing it again. And I got to say, I'm not going to name names. Not all of the hosts love Halloween. It could be anybody I'm talking about. Joy. Um, And it's, you know, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an effort. She gets into it in the end. That's the thing. Everyone ultimately gets into it. I think it's so fun. That and the Christmas show are my absolute favorite, even if it's a ton of work. Um, And also, my favorite thing, although we, I'm not going to preview my costume, this actually doesn't go for my costume this year. I love when people are willing to, if they're not like when beautiful women don't just want to look beautiful on Halloween. Mm-hmm. I think like in the past, um, you know, like Whoopi was the plant from what's the Audrey two from yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, two. yeah. Um, Sunny was something from a horror movie that I didn't even recognize. Sunny was it. Once. Oh yeah, she's yeah. it. And and yeah, Sunny was bald once as one of the yeah, Dora like, Milaje and and uh, Black Panther. She 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 likes 
I like cool when costume. people try something super different and outside the box, mm-hmm. and we're going to see some fun things this Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. It's always uh, landing on the costumes for everybody is a challenge because obviously you all have very strong opinions about what you're going to do <laughs> and everything else. But um, it, it's a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully people will tune in. Um, all right. I think, I think we're good. All right. So, Wonderful. okay. Thank you so much. Tomorrow we'll be back with Joy Behar. Thank you for listening. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.